Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're listening to the story series. This week, Chris Marshall takes us deeper into the second act of the story. Enjoy. So, we are doing our, meta, our series on the meta-narrative of the Bible, and we spent the first two weeks uh, looking at Act 1, the story of creation, and then last week, or last time we met, Peter covered Act 2, which he talked about as the fall becoming an avalanche. We were going to do Act 3 tonight, but Simon is not able to be here. He gave me a call during the week, and I suggested that rather than us swapping turns and getting the story out of sequence, that we should maybe spend another week looking at the story of the fall. Um, and so that's what I've prepared, like you, over the weekend. So <laughs> um, let's persevere. Actually, two interesting commentaries on the story of the fall in the New Testament. One's in Romans 1, and the other is in Romans 5, and I guess there's a wee bit of an allusion as well in 1 Corinthians 15. But Romans 1 and Romans 5 are, are, are clearly commentaries on the story of the fall. And they both talk about how the primal sin of idolatry, which Paul defines in Romans 1 in a classic way as worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator, how that primal sin sort of cascaded on down through subsequent human history. So Paul's idea of original sin is not the Augustinian idea of original guilt. It's not that we, this is at least in my view, it's not that we are guilty for what Adam did, but rather we sort of inherit a vulnerability and we inherit a servitude. So we're all born as innocent, morally perfect creatures but into a wider context that's controlled by the power of sin, and with this inbuilt, sort of almost genetic inability to resist its lure, so that we all end up replicating the same behaviour that Adam showed. And looking at the story of the fall for for last week's um, cell group, it struck me that the sin was not, Adam's sin was not so much one of simple disobedience, it was actually a, a, a... breach of trust. It was this refusal to trust in the wisdom and power of God, uh, resulting in a whole series of results in which Adam's descendants, of which we are amongst, end up acting in harmful and selfish ways and suffering the damage of other people acting in harmful and selfish ways as well. So, and I hadn't actually thought about it, Phil, until you mentioned lament and and the current situation in the world, which is incredibly distressing and depressing. But I've come to believe that the primary social manifestation of the presence of sin in the world, the primary proof that humanity is subject to this kind of inherited captivity, uh, is the presence and the dynamics of violence. So I guess you could say the primary interpersonal manifestation of sin is this brokenness of trust that you see between Adam and Eve and that's replicated in all our relationships. But the kind of social upscaling of that, it seems to me, is what violence is. And we see, we see that to unbelievable degrees uh, in the world at the moment. So I want to share some thoughts on the creation and fall stories, um, which have come out of my attempt to try and come to terms with what I think is one of the biggest challenges in regarding the Bible as a source of authority. And that challenge is the presence in the biblical text 
of divinely authorised and not infrequently divinely perpetrated violence. So there are some 600 passages in the Old Testament which record episodes of violence. There are 1,000 verses in which God is said to be involved in violence, and there are 100 places where God expressly commands people to do violent things, including to kill people. And this material creates this sort of jarring dissonance between the God that Jesus seems to proclaim, the God of love and of mercy and forgiveness, and the God of violence and vengeance that we see so often on display in the Old Testament. This jarring dissonance, as I've called it, has long perplexed Christian interpreters. Reconciling these two portraits of God we find in the Bible has been called, and I quote, the greatest theological and hermeneutical problem in the Bible. So it's a theological problem because it challenges the very idea that God has an unchanging character, that God is self-consistent. It's a hermeneutical problem because it raises the question of, well, how can these two portraits equally be our guide in the same part of sacred scripture? And it's also a moral problem because the way we come to terms with this problem uh, is likely to, I don't think automatically by any means, because people can hold violent theologies and still not be violent people, but uh, it's likely to lead to implications for the way we choose to live our lives as those who bear witness to God in the world. And again, we see the crassest examples of this with Islamic fundamentalism at the moment, but um, it's, it's true of the Christian community historically as well. So this, this problem of how do, we, how do we square the God of violence and vengeance with the God of love and mercy is a huge problem for us as Christians. It's a problem for Jewish interpreters as well, and they too have wrestled with how the compassionate God of Ezekiel 33 or Hosea 11 can be lined up with the God of number 16 who does, you know, commits human rights abuses without question. And so um, I guess every scriptural tradition has this problem. But it confronts us as Christians, I think, in a particularly acute way because of the centrality that Christianity gives, at least in theory, to the story of Jesus. So theoretically... Christianity, and this is why having four, you know, three quarters of the evangelical community in North America voting for Donald Trump is such a huge problem, because in principle, Christianity gives centrality to the Jesus story when it tries to work out what God is like. For Christians, Jesus is the supreme testimony of who God is. He, to use the language of John's Gospel, shows us the Father. Or the language of Hebrews 1, he is the exact imprint of God's very being. So, you know, it's the image of a, of a wax um, pad with a dye going into it, and the image perfectly reflects the, the, the dye. That's what Jesus is to God, according to the New Testament. Problem is that Jesus' embodiment of God uh, seems very different than the view of God that we find elsewhere in the Bible. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I don't know. And from the very beginning of Christian history, people have struggled with this. One of the early solutions that was suggested by uh, a man called Marcion and by the various sort of Gnostic sects was to say, well, the God of the Old Testament has nothing to do with Jesus. 
the God of Jesus, or the God who is Jesus, is a different God than the God of the Old Testament, who's a lesser uh, and inferior being. But the church roundly rejected that solution as a heresy, and Christian orthodoxy has always insisted that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ can be none other than the God of Israel and the creator of all that exists. So let's start at that point. Well, what does this tell us about God? Has God changed? Has God decided to give up being a violent God as he appears in the Old Testament with the advent of Christ and decided he'll try non-violence this time round? Or has, is God unchanged? Is God, by definition, unchangeable? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's the case, then what does that tell us about God's use of violence? So if God is unchanging, and we know from the biblical testimony that God was thought to use violence, then does that mean that God still uses violence? Is violence still part of one of the tools in God's repertoire of methods for achieving his purposes in saving history? Now, if we look at the history of the Christian church and a good deal of Christian theology right up to the Donald today, then the answer would be, yes, God still uses violence. And Christians historically has, have been quite comfortable to identify the will of God with all manner of butchery and barbarism and to claim that this is something that God authorises. So, this is a very big problem, and we're not, I'm not going to solve it for you. But what I want to do is just suggest two things for tonight. The first thing is to say that the Jesus that God reveals and embodies is, I am personally persuaded, a non-violent God. A God of peace, a God of mercy, not a God of violence or a God of vengeance. And when Jesus calls his followers to embrace non-violence as part of their way of living, and when he practices it himself in his own life right up to the point of self-sacrifice on the cross, he doesn't do so simply because it's a tactical expedient. So there are some scholars, including the great N.T. Wright, who suggest that the reason why Jesus was non-violent is because if he had tried to use violence, the Romans would have simply snuffed him out. Uh, it wasn't possible for uh, change to be achieved violently and so he used non-violence as a kind of strategic alternative. But that's, I don't think, an adequate enough answer. I think the reason why Jesus calls for non-violence is because he saw that as an articulation of what God was like and the way that God exercises his rule. So that's why Jesus explicitly grounds his summons to enemy love and non-retaliation on the imitation of the Heavenly Father who, quote, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his reign on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Jesus instructs his followers in Luke to be children of the Most High, for he is grateful and kind to the wicked. They are to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus' ethic of nonviolence, I think, is predicated on the premise of a nonviolent God, a God who, as one scholar puts it, is exactly the opposite of violence. A God whose limitless forgiveness and boundless love are different in every respect from the mechanisms of violence and the vicious cycle of destructiveness. And so those who claim to follow this God must also be non-violent as well. So that's the first point, and that's the kind of passion best 
uh, talk. The second point, to get back to our series, is I want to suggest that this is not an entirely new revelation by Jesus. That it's already evident in the creation and full narratives of Genesis. So I think it's hugely significant for this larger question of religious violence and God's involvement in violence. Excuse me, that notwithstanding the violence that God is said to perpetrate in the pages of the Bible, this meta-narrative that we're talking about opens and closes in surprisingly peaceful ways. The two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and the presentation of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. So violence has no role either in the work of creation or in the completion of new creation. So it's not something that um, is innate to the being of God. It's not part of God's creative activity. It only enters the picture as a result of human sin. And eventually it will come to an end. So this sort of eschatological projection forward to the New Jerusalem is one in which there is no violence. It's actually quite different from the ancient Near Eastern creation myths that the Old Testament story was probably in dialogue with, such as the Babylonian Imunar Elish, where creation is the result of this violent act of deicide, the killing of a god and the hacking of the god's body up, with humans being created from the blood of this murdered god and existing for the purpose of feeding the gods through sacrifice. So according to these ancient stories, Humans were made to be servants to the gods by feeding them the bodies of bloody sacrifice victims. And in those stories, evil precedes creation. Chaos is conquered by violence, and the reigning Babylonian king serves as Marduk's representative on earth by holy war. So very violent creation stories. But by contrast with that in the biblical story, as Walter Wink writes... The Bible, I'm quoting, the Bible portrays a good God who creates a good creation. Chaos does not resist order. Good is prior to evil. Neither evil nor violence is a part of creation, but enter later as a result of the first couple's sin and the connivance of the serpent. A basically good reality is thus corrupted by free decisions reached by creatures. In this far more complex and subtle explanation of the origins of things, violence emerges for the first time as a problem requiring solution. So the creation narratives in Genesis portray a non-violent God who speaks the world into existence. I think even better than that, is it it Tolkien who says God sings the world into existence? So I think that's even nicer. But God of creation speaks the world into existence, doesn't do it by murderous activity. And he creates human beings in his own non-violent image with the task of cultivating creation as devoted gardeners, not to pillage it as rapacious warriors. Things, of course, as we saw uh, in Peter's talk, go badly wrong. And violence enters this peaceable reality in Genesis 4 with Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Interestingly, now this is, this is my reading of the story, so um, less reliable than Walter Winks. But interestingly, it strikes me that God's reply to Adam and Eve's disobedience 
is not a violent one. God doesn't execute them or beat them into submission. Along with saying that they will inherit certain consequences from their broken trust, pain, toil, shame, mortality, uh, ecological dislocation, they're banished from the garden. So their punishment, if you want to call it that, is a kind of exile from the garden. But that is expressly for redemptive purposes, for restorative purposes even, to prevent their fallen condition from becoming everlasting by eating from the tree of life. So the text says, The Lord said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground which he had taken. He drove out the man, uh, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning the, and the guard turning away, uh, guarding the way from the tree of life. When in the second generation the problem of sibling rivalry arises between Cain and Abel, God tries to warn Cain off from succumbing to the feelings of jealousy and resentment. And he, in speaking to um, Cain, he personifies sin like this hungry animal who's lying at the door just waiting to pounce. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So there's this sort of overwhelming power and God's warning Cain about the dangers of um, being overcome by this. It's so powerful that overcomes the will of God. So God doesn't want this to happen. It's like the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, presupposes God's will is not being done on earth at the moment. Um, and so it's so powerful, it overcomes the will of God, it overtakes the passions of Cain, and he turns to violence, murdering his brother. But even then, God still doesn't respond violently. Instead, he exiles Cain from the land. And this time acting to protect his life, even though he's a murderer, by placing this, this um, mark on his, on his head. But now, the, the kind of the ante gets upped a bit, because now God threatens violence. He threatens sevenfold vengeance. So Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. So again, this kind of resistance to um, deadly violence. God's next response to human sinfulness in the Genesis narrative in Genesis 6 is to put this 120-year limit on the human lifespan and to express his regret for having ever started the show in the first place. Right? These, are, these are really interesting narratives when you, um, when you read them. So God thinks you know, he made a big blunder in actually choosing to create human beings the way he did. So the, story goes, uh, the text goes like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth 
And just listen to this sentence, because we're going to come back to it in a moment. That every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So their drive of their hearts was toward evil. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. As violence spins out of control in the story, and the text says the earth is filled with violence, God plans his act of violent retribution, in which everything on the earth shall die. And as we know, God carries it out, and he drowns everybody save for a tiny handful of creatures. Afterwards, however, God's deeply disturbed at the indiscriminate nature of the violence he has employed, because non-human creation has been made to bear the brunt of humanity's sin. And at the same time, and maybe this is why the story is there in the first place, at the same time, God recognises that wiping out sinful people doesn't deal with the problem. Just killing all the bad people doesn't deal with the problem. For, and this is why I picked out that text from, um, sentence from Genesis 6, because in Genesis 8, on the other side of the flood story, exactly the same thing is said. For the inclination of the human heart is still evil from youth. So God's killed all the bad people in the flood. But the ones that are left have still got the problem. And so God promises that never again will he curse the ground and destroy all living creatures because of human evil. And then he makes these two telling concessions to the descendants of Noah. So in Genesis 9 we have the covenant with Noah. Two things are allowed. One, humans are now allowed to kill animals for food. And secondly, anybody who takes human life, in contrast to animal life, will face violent retribution from God. So God says, I will require from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that, blood's be sh- that uh, person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind to be fruitful and multiply and abound on the earth and multiply. So this is a, interesting. I, I wrestled with this text when I was writing one of my books because this text is often used to justify capital punishment. Um, But it seems to me what's going on here is that God is kind of trying to use a sort of judicially restricted use of violence to try and control the spirit of vendetta. So if you go back to Genesis 4 with Lamech, he says to his wife's, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. That's, Jesus probably is alluding to that text when he calls for seventy-sevenfold forgiveness. So it's a reversal of this dynamic. But back in Genesis 9, to control that spirit of feuding, of violent feuding, which just escalates, God has this life-for-life life limitation that's placed. So it's, uh, it's you know, one life, but no more than one life. And it's, uh, I think, intended to counter that. 
So in a sense, I think you could almost say, and this is a bit controversial, I know, that God makes a compromise with violence. Lethal violence in the human community is forbidden, but if anybody breaches that restriction, then God says they can expect God to act in a similar manner towards them, life for life. In the patriarchal narratives that follow after the sort of primeval period, is it Genesis 12 onwards um, with Abraham? In the patriarchal narratives, actually remarkably little violence. They're very peaceful stories by and large. Violence is sometimes described, and when it does, God's always implicated. So Sodom and Gomorrah is the case where God destroys the city. But violence in the biblical story really only becomes really pronounced during the exodus and the conquest of Canaan, where at points genocide is commanded. So you you read the story of the Battle of Jericho, and it's horrific, really, because the command is given to slaughter every man, woman, and child and to hamstring all the animals and to just, you know, raise the city. Um, not necessary for victory. I mean, it's complete, it's complete carnage. And so thereafter in the story of the Old Testament, God is frequently depicted as the author and instrument of violence, ranging from individual acts of retribution through to large-scale war-making. And that's why we've got our problem, because of this is very difficult to square with Jesus. So what I'm suggesting then is that in the Genesis story, God is initially portrayed as one who resists and opposes violence, not a violent being uh, in his own activity, resists and opposes violence, albeit without success. But as violence grows and spreads in the human community, God feels driven to employ counter-violence. But having done so, he immediately regrets having done so because violence of its nature is indiscriminate and it is ultimately futile. But the kind of logic of redemptive violence seems to have a, have a, a, a logic of its own. And frequently in the biblical story, including in the Psalms, which must be some of the most violent documents in the Bible... <laughs> God is depicted as the author of violence who shows his greatness by the fact that he's bigger and tougher than anybody else. It's almost as though that once God is thought to compromise with violence, the experience of God gets compromised by violence and the apprehension of God gets contaminated by it so that the peaceable God of creation who speaks the world into existence and walks in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve and, 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 and invests so much uh, of his own image in them, that peaceable God is inexorably defined in militant and aggressive ways. Now there is counter-themes throughout the Old Testament of love and mercy and forgiveness as well. But the driving theme of so much of that meta-narrative, that larger story of Scripture is one of God using violence to achieve salvation for Israel. Once God is conceived as a God who uses violence, perhaps God's only option is to persevere with humanity uh, in its misconception and its lostness in order to win redemption by other means. 
So you could say then, and this is my, you know, this is the way that I've tried to struggle with this problem, that God almost has to accommodate his self-revelation to the limitations of human perception that is distorted by corruption and sin and violence. And in the process, horrendous acts of violence are attributed to God, or I would say misattributed to God in the biblical story. But this becomes the kind of precondition for exposing the futility of violence to save and its inherent character as an enslaving and self-perpetuating deception. And with the coming of Jesus, God finally casts off the illusions surrounding righteous violence. And I think it's significant that Jesus himself is killed in the name of righteous violence. He's condemned by uh, appeals to divine law and killed for blasphemy. And so God, in Jesus, casts off this illusion in order to, as Ephesians puts it, disclose the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. A plan to reconcile by an act of self-giving, non-violent, victorious love. With God's definitive renunciation of redemptive violence in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we are compelled, I think, to reread these Old Testament narratives in a different way, in such a way that God can no longer be seen, in my view, as the author of the cruelty and killing they record. I mean, those bloody narratives certainly attest to the fact that God was experienced and was caught up in the, in the um, midst of human degradation and violence. But insofar as they ascribe responsibility for these acts of brutality and violence to God, then they simply reveal the distortion that comes from this sort of veil of violence that has shrouded the human experience of God since the days of Cain. In Christ, however, this veil is taken away and God stands fully revealed as, as Paul calls him, and only Paul and one other text in the New Testament, the God of peace. So let me finish by just reading a little bit from um, 2 Corinthians. It's not really talking about violence, but it's making a similar point. And I, in um, the work that I did, that I've drawn this talk from, tried to reapply this way of thinking to the issue of divine violence. So Paul says, if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets, talking about the Torah, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? Since then, we have such a hope we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened, indeed, until this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. We do not proclaim ourselves, 
we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone, this is my favourite sentence in the whole of the New Testament, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Now listen to the, the non-violence. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. You know, our physical bodies die through persecution so that we may participate in the resurrection of our bodies in the future. For while we live, we are being given up to death always for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be visible in our mortal flesh. So there. Yep. Um, Just a couple. No, lots of questions. No, there's lots of problems with it. <laughs> Maybe you can repeat the questions. Yep. Um, I've struck by the term a number of times that God millions of them regret that, mm-hmm. or He found out that that strategy didn't work. It almost portrays that you know we kind of have this idea that God's all knowing, He's all wise. Um, he can see the beginning and the end at the same time. Why did he act in a way that you would not wouldn't have worked? <laughs> <laughs> the idea he I, regrets something. Yeah, I know. God repents. Says it a number of times. And the, I mean, I think some of the ways in which we come at the God issue is so conditioned by Greek philosophical notions of perfection involving. Yeah lack of change. So, you know, the, the sort of um, Greek philosophical notion of God is the unmoved mover. There's one, uh, one theologian's written a book called The Most Moved Mover, and it's really about the passions of God, and passion, um, experience, love, um, involve change, because you participate in the life of the beloved, and therefore what affects the beloved one affects you. And so God is portrayed certainly in these early chapters of, of Genesis not as this kind of all-knowing um, master computer in the sky who could have sorted it all out just by you know, putting the right code in, but as this involved being who makes himself vulnerable to the decisions of his creatures. Um, uh, it's part of the essence of love, I suppose, now, the only way I can sort of make sense of this idea that God, you know, because I, I get the feeling from reading the stories that God is kind of holding me back. I'm, you know, <laughs> um, that the use of violence and its futility is part of what we need to know, part of what we need to learn, in a sense. Um, and maybe these stories are told in this imaginative way to try and help us see that you know, even when God employs violence to solve the problem that doesn't work. And therefore we need to be more critical.
critical of the temptation of violence. Um, God being non-violent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the stuff on God's. So the question about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five, yeah. Acts five is it? Acts somewhere in there, um, where they they embezzle funds, don't they? And they lie about it. And Peter says, um, you know, you're going to get your cut, your comeuppance, and they drop dead. Kind of shock reaction. I mean, one Peter doesn't kill them. And the church doesn't authorise any kind of, of punishment, any kind of you know, capital punishment. I think it was this sense of having breached this kind of sacred boundary and the kind of um, awareness of the seriousness of that. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a bit like later on when the, the king who gets all eaten up with worms and dies, that's also seen as an act of God. So, I mean, this is a problem. I know this is a real problem because... These sort of bad things are still ascribed to the to the initiative that God takes, and I mean the only way I can begin to make sense of it is that this is a way of confessing God's involvement and God's ultimate sort of sovereign power and what everything that happens. But the idea that God sort of dishes out these individual punishments like some sort of um, angry judge is. Metaphorical. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of explaining, a way of affirming God's involvement in human affairs. But the biggest problem for the, my argument about God being non-violent is eschatological punishment and the language that's used around that. And even if that stuff is, and I'm sure it has to be, uh, pictorial, pictorial um, again, it's still... My, my unsolved problem with it is it still means that God eventually says, right, time's up. I'm going to deal with it by killing everybody. And everything we sort of see in the story of Jesus is a different way of working. So, you know, uh, how you reconcile these things is, is, is a challenge. Um, so would, would it be that, you know, every, you know, sort of where life is taken... I know the argument for um, for capital punishment is that there is a there is a point in time when a just kind of action is taken, and so we we think that God is a God who never he's not vengeful, he's not unfair, yeah. he's not unjust, right? But he's saying at this point in time the correct way of bringing justice here is to end the life. Well, that's, that's the argument for capital punishment. Yes. Yeah. But if you, if you apply that principle that everything God does is just, and then you say, what about Jericho? Then you cancel it out. It seems to me, I, I don't know how on any standards of justice it can be just to kill children um, and other innocent inhabitants who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And to the extent to which the story says God commanded that, I say, no, they thought God commanded that. can't be the case. can't be the God that I know. Mm. 
in Jesus. Could we kind of add another B though that there, or even in Jericho, there was an aspect of grace within the fact that Rahab was um, yep. redeemed? Yep. But what about the 15 month old children who weren't redeemed? Yeah, I agree. And some, I mean, the simplest solution to this problem is to say um, all the violence that God is said to be responsible for must have been deserved. Right? So God, because God is just, only does things that are just, then every act that God, violent act that God is said to have done, it must have been, it must have been right to do it. And then we, we find reasons to make it right. To, to, um, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, these stories of, of um, the total destruction of the enemy, I mean, you can find things, I mean, you can find sort of aspects of that practice that you can say make a little bit more sense. So, so for example, I mean, if, you, um, if you're commanded to totally destroy the enemy and everything that the enemy possesses, that stops you plundering, you know, waging wars for plunder, because... You have to destroy all your plunder, so you can see kind of you know limitations built into it. But you, you still, to me, you still ultimately come back to the point where you have to either say God said it or God didn't say it. And I well, uh, that was one of my questions about how how much of this or we struggle as as Westerners understanding Hebrew way of writing something. Which one yeah. of the aspects is they always wrote things from a God yeah. perspective, yeah. not from yeah. a human yeah. perspective. Yeah. So God said do this, which yeah. is a way of saying the king decided to do this. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So you, know, you could say um, that every story of divinely authorised violence in the Old Testament is actually people killing each other mm-hmm. on God's behalf. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are cases where natural disasters occur, you know, earthquakes and so on, and, and God is seen behind that. But I think part, part of the solution is rhetorical. It's a, it's a way of talking about things that yeah. makes God the direct author of all that happens, good and bad. Yes. And, Well, well, Margaret and I were talking about um, what were we talking about? Was it Donald Trump? Well, something about I can't remember now. But I know that's right. I was saying to Margaret that I wonder how George Bush and Tony Blair feel when they look at the Middle East at the moment. Mm-hmm. Right? So they, you know, they launched this illegal, devastating war, and hundreds and thousands of people have been killed as a result, and they're still being killed. And I mean, both Tony Blair and George Bush are Christians. And George Bush, a recent, I read a review of a biography of him, says he, he was you know, a religiously driven zealot, really. He really thought this was... And Margaret said to me, well, why doesn't God tell them? And I said, well, God, God has told them. God has told them in the story of Jesus. The problem is they're not listening. So, so I mean, I think in terms, of, in terms of sort of ordinary people reading the Bible, the thing that People, the thing that I would want 
all Christians to have a clear understanding of is that their ethical practice in the world has to look like Jesus. And then, you know, if they want to sort of turn the Old Testament violence into allegories or into spiritual warfare, and this is the many ways that have been done, that's fine, as long as, as the reference point is Jesus. When that's not there, then if people simply take the text at face value, then they're very vulnerable to being told by somebody, you know, God's done it before, God wants you to do it again. And, I mean, we just live in a world where that's happening every day. Yeah. Um, my, my question for you is about the atonement, and I've read some of your atonements up, and I was wondering where you're currently, you're currently sitting, sitting um, thinking about Scotland, um, atonement theology. Um, same as when you read it, no doubt, because I, yeah. I, I, I think about other things at the moment these days. But yeah. um, again, I, I think the key thing. One of the key things to take out of, the, out of the atonement story is that Jesus was killed in the name of God by religious leaders claiming he had committed a religious offence. So it was divine violence being perpetrated against... <laughs> Just didn't look the right way. So, I mean, to me, atonement is Jesus absorbing into himself the act of human violence done in the name of God and responding by saying, Father, forgive. And unlike any of the other descendants of Adam, it stopped there. You know, it wasn't, it, it didn't sort of, it wasn't mirrored back. And I think, you know, this, to, to me, the, the most telling thing about the atonement story is that prayer, Father forgive them, because Jesus didn't even want to strike back, never mind not strike back I mean there are other people who haven't struck back but Jesus didn't even want to so there was, there was a, to me a breaking of that problem that laid hold of Cain at the beginning and that's what breaks the power of sin in my humble opinion which is unlike punitive theologies of atonement, which say it was broken by the fact that God eventually got his pound of flesh. Mm-hmm. Anyone else any questions? <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot more I think the problem with, I mean, I recognise that this way of, and what I go on, this is based on an article I wrote a number of years ago, what I go on to suggest is that in the way that the Apostle Paul wrestles with the issue of the Torah in Christian experience is the same kind of problem. It's not the problem of violence. It's the problem that God seems to be behaving differently now than God did before. And to try and, to try and wrestle with that, Paul seems able to both affirm the fact that God is disclosed in the law and the fact that we have not understood it correctly. And so I, what I'm suggesting is that when it comes to the violence of God in the biblical tradition, God is still disclosed in it. We still need to read those stories with charity. Um, but they can mislead if we don't read them in light of, of the veil being lifted in the story of Jesus.